So coming this Christmas, there's a very popular film that's going to be released. A lot of people are excited about it. The kids are in the service today. Maybe some of you kids are excited about it. It's a film called Star Wars Rogue One. I think it's being released at Christmas time. Are, raise your hands, kids. Are there any kids that are interested in this film at all? That, yeah, some kids? Okay. Are there any big kids that are... Okay, good. I thought just the nerd in the pulpit, so I was, I was nervous asking that question. Interesting thing about Star Wars and really all these, whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek, any Trekkies in here feeling left out right now? Okay, yeah, they, they, they put their hands up like that. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing about these, these swashbuckling space stories is there's always this moment in the battle where they say, shields up, you know, shields up, or deflector shields, or something with shields or force shields, and, you know, the, the, the laser beams or the photon whatever, are bouncing off the ships. And, you know, that's a picture, I think, of my own naivety, and some of you may concur with this, about the, a, a, a picture of the Christian faith being like a shields-up scenario, that if I am God's child and I have enough faith or I become a mature enough believer or if I read the Bible enough or pray enough or do something enough, that all of a sudden I will have this shields-up scenario where suffering just bounces off of my life. And I can always turn to texts in the Old Testament where it really seems to be saying that suffering will bounce off of my life. And over the next five weeks, we're going to go through a series called Gospel Hope. And we're going to explore the scriptures to see the hope that there is in the gospel. And how deep and rich and beautiful it is. But it's not a shields up force field faith that we have. That's, a, that's naivety. But here in North America over the last 50 years, the predominant idea about faith has been, you know, if God can't keep you from suffering, what good is he? Or if God can't keep the world from suffering, he probably doesn't exist because he's clearly doing a poor job. And next thing you know, in the church, we can sound a little bit like Job's friends when people are going through suffering. Because we're always pining for a reason behind the suffering, as opposed to falling on the grace of God for strength and peace and nourishment in our suffering, which is actually a, the picture of, of our biblical hope. And, uh, you know, this isn't anything new, blaming God for, for suffering. In the 1300s, from 1346 to 1353, one of the greatest pandemics in human history occurred. It was the Black Plague. And during that period of time, it had a, took a radical toll um, on humanity as a whole but, uh, and had a massive impact on the church because essentially the culture was saying, what good is your God? There's just as many Christians dying from this black plague as there are uh, non-believers. Believers and non-believers alike are dying from this black plague. So what good is your God? Where is your God? So this isn't anything new. This idea that, you know, um, or the false idea that God is somehow there for, uh, to keep us from suffering. But the reason I want to take five weeks to unpack this is because globally speaking, life is short and life is hard. And here in KW Redeemer, right here in this small community of believers here in front of me, we all have walked through these doors with, with pain and hurt and sorrow of various kinds. And, and I want you to know that the hope of the gospel is not that God keeps bad things from happening to us. The hope of the gospel is that God is with us, strengthen us by his grace, regardless of what's happening to us. And so this morning's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to read uh, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, uh, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. This morning we want to unpack this passage where Peter is writing to a suffering church. They're going through real deal, what am I going to do tomorrow with this problem, suffering. And we're going to unpack this text. And as we do, um, we're going to ask it three questions. The three questions we're going to ask are, why do we need the hope of the gospel? What is the strength of the hope of the, of the gospel? And how do we rest in the hope of the gospel? Here's today's sermon in a sentence. The hope of the gospel strengthens our hearts with the grace of God to have joy in the midst of suffering. And so kids, take a look down at your notes, and we're going to start with this first question. Why do we need the hope of the gospel? Why do we need it? Well, because everybody hurts. REM got it right. Nobody's life is devoid of suffering. There's no such thing. We need the hope of the gospel because everybody deals with a measure of suffering. In verse 1, it, Peter uh, uh, I didn't actually read verse 1, but if you go back to verse 1, Peter kind of gives the introduction to who his audience is, and he calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion, which is, a fan, uh, which is kind of a fanciful phrase, but it means those who've been saved by God, you're the elect, you've been chosen by God's great grace, he has saved you, but you're exiles, so you're, you're going through it in a really big way, you've, you've, you're being culturally kind of abandoned in a lot, in a lot of ways, you afflicted or persecuted and then he says to the dispersion so they're scattered all over the place the the people reading that original letter that i just read to you there's no way that their groups were any larger than the one here in front of me just to put this in context for you small little house churches reading the letter to find encouragement really going through it really suffering and uh i had a young guy talk to me the other week when i was having a coffee with him and he was kind of saying well if god can't keep us from suffering what's the point well, if God, you know, can't just reach down and go dzz, 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 and stop terrorist attacks from happening globally, what's the point? Or the wrong idea about this, this, this God who uh, is supposed to just um, arbitrarily reach down and stop all suffering. What the Bible gives us is that God is in the end going to eradicate all suffering. But right here and right now, he is with us giving us grace for our suffering. You can abandon your idea that there, you can say, well, there's horrible things happening in the world, so therefore God doesn't exist, so therefore I'm not going to believe in him. You haven't solved your fundamental problem. You are still left with the difficulties that exist with being a human being on planet Earth. I mean, they're still there. Only now you're God. Or you've made something else that's going to one day, you know, crumble and disintegrate. You've made that God. 
We haven't really evaded this problem. So Peter is writing these people because uh, they're going through it. And see, the God of the Bible does not exist to make our life more comfortable. I'll borrow a line from Michael Horton. He talks about how we think that Christian faith is therapeutic deism. God exists to make my life more comfortable. Well, if that's true, then there's scores of people that are living very comfortable lives that don't need God. And globally speaking, if that's true, that God exists to make our lives more comfortable, God is doing a horrible job of being God. But the Bible does not present that God exists for us at all. Rather, the reverse is true. We exist for him. We exist for him, and Christ did not suffer so that in this life we wouldn't suffer. Christ suffered so that he would receive God's judgment and wrath so that you and I would receive God's mercy and grace. That's why Christ suffered. But if we, get, if we don't go to the Bible as a reference for suffering, and we say, well, you know, the, the popular North American idiom, how many times have I heard this in my life? You know, uh, Christ suffered so you don't have to. Well, and, or, or if you're a person of non-belief, well, didn't Christ suffer so that the children of God don't have to? No. That's, that's bumper sticker theology. That's not in the Bible. That's not why this letter Peter wrote to the suffering church would have sounded com- completely different if that were true. The covenant of grace is not an exercise in spiritual lever pulling. If we believe that, we'll create a, a culture in the church, this false class system. Well, here's the people that happen to be healthy or wealthy or both, and they're healthy or wealthy or both because they have somehow hit a home run with their spiritual disciplines. And then there's these people who can't seem to get health or they can't seem to get wealth or they can't seem to get, you know, these other things that are plaguing them or suffering. And their reason they can't, again, we sound like Job's friends. We've created a class system in the church on suffering. But, but that's simply not true. And so Peter is orienting this church back to something powerful, which I'm going to get to in a minute. Um, so maturity is not leveraging God to deliver us from suffering. Maturity is loving and trusting God while we're in our suffering. Um, because we all have to deal with it. If you're a student and you're working diligently in school or in university, um, there's always that potential for fear of the future, concern about what will the economy be like, what will the job situations be like. I mean, there's a lot of reason to, to worry or to give in to anxiety. If you're a grown adult and you've already got a career, you understand uh, the volatility of industry and these kinds of things. You know, we're all watching the, uh, depending on what, what, uh, what career you have, we're all watching the American election with great interest, not only because it's a little bit like watching a cartoon, but because, <laughs> sorry, I should, the, the pulpit is not for politics, so I'm going to stop there. But the reason why we're interested in it is because it does have an impact on our Canadian economy. Right? It does. We can't, we, we, so we're interested in it. We have got reason to be uh, concerned. There's people in this church who you would do anything if you could change the scenario that's going on in your body or in the body of your loved one. Uh, we've got people in this room who your, your health is fine, but you can't make your ends meet or you're constantly frustrated to make your ends meet or uh, you've got relationships that are, that, are, that are in constant state of stress. We all need the hope of the gospel in our suffering. We need it. I'm going to borrow from Tim Keller, and I'm going to say this. Uh, Kids, look down at your notes, because I gave you this. This is a very important thing to consider. There is no way to get through life unless you know how to get through suffering. And there is no way to get through suffering 
unless you have a living hope. And the key word is living. It's a living hope. That's how Peter described it. When Peter described the hope, and I just read it to you, he described it as living. He's writing to the suffering church. The ancient world had, that church had problems like sickness and poverty and disease and death, but they also had some organized persecution against them, and they had massive, massive social rejection. And partly we can relate to, we can relate to parts of that, uh, but we can't relate to other parts of it here in, in KW. Uh, none of us are under persecution, um, and we may be afflicted in various ways, but uh, in reference to what, what the early church here was dealing with, us, here at least in Kitchener-Waterloo, we're not dealing with that. Um, I have a friend who's been in China probably 12, 14 times by now. A couple of years ago, he was there. Um, he's working with these rural churches out in rural you know, um, China in these provinces where the farmers... Um, couldn't afford to get Bibles. Bibles are very prevalent in the cities in China, but not not rurally. And so he's getting them Bibles in their languages. And and so he was in this little church. It was it, it was probably about the size of a Redeemer here, maybe a little smaller. And he said to them, "How many of you have been persecuted for your faith?" Nobody put their hands up. And he goes, "Oh, I, he said, I'm, I thought, okay." So he asked it again. He goes, "Has anybody here been ever been persecuted for their faith?" And the translator asks again. And, he thought, well, maybe they're, maybe they're not understanding, or maybe I'm not using the right word. Or... So he said, how many of you have been arrested and put in jail for your faith? And then he said, almost everybody in the room put their hand up. They're like, oh, well, yeah, well, we've been arrested. <laughs> but, I mean, we haven't been persecuted. See, right? That's a world we don't understand. Because we'll post something on Facebook, and somebody will go, I disagree. N.T. Wright said this. <laughs> persecuted. No. We're not really persecuted. You know, and, and uh, I'm, I don't want to, I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize. I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle your suffering like you're not suffering. What I'm trying to do is give you a context for um, Peter's audience. They were, none of us came here this morning and we were afraid for our lives on the way. That, that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to convey. So um, at any rate, uh, we are, as North Americans, surprised when we suffer because of the prevailing way that the gospel has been taught here for so long. So when we suffer, we're surprised. Right. And these other countries, they're not surprised. Like I said, even, even today, I mean, if I, was in, if I was in Syria today, I would not be surprised at suffering. When I was in South Sudan a couple of years ago, and I've shared with you the stories, they're not surprised. I've, other countries I've been in, Colombia, they're not surprised. The, one of the pastors I met in Colombia was uh, shot in the stomach by the gorilla, and uh, then he Get, got out of the hospital and he survived amazingly and he went back and he uh, and he uh, continued to pastor the church and uh, you know they, they, they for them this is a thing that I don't I don't I don't deal with this kind of thing when I was in the Philippines they had a church called the church of the billboard because they couldn't afford to rent any space in in Davao and a very small congregation so they met in a billboard I mean, legit, two billboards with a little platform in between them. They walked up the ladder, and they met in between the two billboards. And they just put some tin and stuff on top, so if it rained, I don't know how you'd have heard the, heard, ever heard the sermon with the rain bouncing off the tin. But anyways, the church of the billboard, I saw it. Um, so they don't surprise, they're not surprised when they suffer, but we are, though. We are really surprised uh, when we suffer. And... Um, and in John 16, kids, look down at your notes again. John 16, Jesus says, listen, in this world, you are going to suffer, but be of good cheer, for I have already overcome the world. And when Jesus says you're going to suffer, 
Um, he's not saying to the Christians, hey guys, um, you know, you're going to suffer, you know, the rest of the world isn't going to suffer. You see, humanity suffers. The suffering Jesus was specifically speaking to didn't, I mean, the world, the, the ancient world suffered. Jesus was speaking to a suffering that had to do with them allowing their lives to be defined by a cross. That's different, right? I was with a young guy, uh, but I have a lot of coffee. Every time I tell a story, there's coffee involved. But anyways, I was having a coffee with this guy who's part of a small church plant on the other side of Kitchener. And uh, he's, he's a brilliant um, software engineer. And he said, you know, one of the, one of the uh, hurdles that I had when I was in school was that people assume that if you're a theist, you're, something's wrong with your faculties. That if you believe in God, you must not reason well. Right? And so he had to navigate through, well, actually, I reason quite well, and it's actually been this critical pursuit of reason that's drawn me to these particular conclusions that I have about God. You know? And um, so everybody's suffering, but we suffer in a different way when we say we want our lives to be defined by a cross. So simply put, you know, suffering is the stripping away of the things that we, we love and we care about and that we hope in. And God gives us good things to enjoy. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying over these next five weeks. Like, we aren't supposed to care about people and relationships. You're not supposed to enjoy your house or your car or your cottage or your boat or, your, or sunsets or paintings or music. We're not Gnostics. Gnosticism is escape this terrible physical world and only care about the spiritual. That's not Christian faith. That's Gnosticism. God created the material world, the physical world. He gave you the ingenuity in your mind to create these incredible things like art and, 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 and architecture and, and everything that we enjoy. But if we take those good things and make them the ultimate things and put our hope in those things, the stripping away of those things devastates us. I love my wife and my family and my kids, but if I make Susan and my children my ultimate hope in life, you know, the process of time is going to lead me into suffering because I'm not going to be around forever. I'm noticing I've got more and more gray in the front of my beard, you know, appearing here. I'm not, you know, I'm on a trajectory here. And if all of my hope is in, is in the physical the process of time is going to lead me into great emotional suffering because I'm going to see the things I've made ultimate are, are not going to be with me forever or I'm not going to be with them forever. So the gospel gives us this, this indestructible anchor. Kids, take a look at, down at your notes again because here's what I want you, you little guys and, and the big guys, but the little guys, you, I want you guys to understand this. We need a spiritual, indestructible reference point. Otherwise, we can't handle the suffering of life. Spiritual and indestructible reference point, and that's the gospel, that's Christ, which I'm going to get to in a minute. Otherwise, we can't handle uh, the suffering of life. So let's go into the next question, which is, well, how is there strength in the hope of the gospel? We know we need the hope of the gospel because we all suffer, but how is there strength in the hope of the gospel? Well, there's strength in the hope of the gospel because the grace of Christ cannot be destroyed in suffering. Our hope in God, our faith in Christ, cannot be destroyed in suffering. In verse 3, Peter calls it living hope. This is the good news, right? That the object of our hope is so strong that death itself can't steal it. You and I, we might not be strong in suffering, but the grace of God is. We might be a mess in suffering, but Jesus is not. 
See, we have to be anchored to something outside us, a Savior who is indestructible in our suffering. A, a reference point, a spiritual reference point that quiets our hearts and our souls in the midst of the things that we deal with in life. And so this church Peter's really, really, um, writing to, again, like I said, they had real problems. They had serious, physical, how do I deal with this tomorrow problems. Just like you come in on Sundays with real, physical, tangible, how do I deal with this tomorrow problems. Which is why the job of the preacher is to proclaim Christ to you from every text, the hope of the gospel, to reorient your hearts so that you can rest and have strength and grace and peace for what you've got to deal with on Monday. And that doesn't come by telling you how to be a better version of yourself. That, teach, that comes by resting in the grace of Christ, in the worship of Christ, so that from that there's this desire to live to the glory of Christ, and by the power of the Spirit we are transformed. So in verse 4, Peter uses the words, your inheritance is imperishable and it's kept. It's not pending. What, what Christ has done for you means that the hope of the gospel is not, you've got a promise that's pending. Peter says it's kept. It's not, hey, there's this great thing that Christ did at the cross, and you want to know what? At the end of your life, if you're good enough, no, that's not the hope of the gospel. Hey, you know what? At the end of your life, if you walked enough old ladies across the street, and if you volunteered enough at the church, and if you were involved enough in the community, if you gave enough money, if you did enough that you know, then, no. That's not the hope of the gospel. Peter says, it's kept. It's imperishable. It's past tense. It is finished. Done. Now you get to live from this place of freedom because of that. And it's because the hope of the gospel is that everything is good. Everything that is good about your life, everything you enjoy about your life, is going to be restored to perfection. And everything that is sorrowful about your life, in the end, is going to be eradicated. This is the hope of the gospel. Do you like being a human being on planet Earth? Then everything about being a human being on planet Earth, every good and perfect gift, being from the Father above, I'm talking about what James wrote, about how God is good and gives good things and good gifts, everything you enjoy about being a human, those things are going to be restored to per perfection forever. And everything sorrowful about being a human on planet Earth, that's being eradicated. See, that's what's coming. We're going to, over the next five weeks, I'm going to actually dial into what do the scriptures teach about heaven and these kinds of things so that we understand we don't have some sort of a fairy book, coloring book faith where we just float around on clouds and play harps and do nothing forever. You know, kids, good news. Heaven is not an eternal church service, you know, <laughs> where you just sing forever, okay? That's, all the kids are like, yay, good, because I thought heaven sounded really boring. No, that's not what the Bibles teach about heaven at all. And so... The hope of the gospel is that there's something that's kept. And then Peter gives it in a great paradox. In verse 6 and 7, the paradox that Peter gives is this. He says that our hope is living, present tense. Our grief and our suffering is present tense. And our joy is present tense. Right? It's, all in the, it's all in the present tense. He says you're suffering right now, but you have joy right now, and you have living hope right now. In the Greek, the word is... Our, uh, is uh, arxi, ar how am I saying that? Arti. It's a present tense um, use of the adverb that's saying it's all right now, it's at the same time. See, what the gospel does is, it doesn't, the, the gospel message is not, hey guys, I know that life is really hard, I know that's really horrible, I know that you're suffering and you're going through stuff, you know, bad things, but don't worry. Sucks to be you, but heaven is coming. That is not what Peter said, that is not the hope of the gospel. If we can't have peace and hope and grace right now, then we have no gospel. 
So the gospel is not hang on until. It's right here, right now, simultaneously. In your great grief and suffering, there is great joy available. How is that possible? Only by grace. Physically speaking, it's not possible. Humanly speaking, you have to have the absence of conflict to have peace. You have to have the absence of tragedy and suffering and sorrow to have, to have rest. But the gospel hope, the hope of the gospel, is in the middle of your life when it's hitting the fan and all hell is breaking loose. You sit down and you reflect upon something and your soul finds rest. This is the hope of Christ. This is the hope of gospel. This is why Peter gives this, this paradox. Right? It's this simultaneous hope. And so, um, kids, take a look down at your uh, notes again. You see, because of Jesus, our hope is no longer based on circumstances working out. If we forsake Christ and the cross and God and faith, and we say, you know what, we're going to just park all that. And now we're going to be people of hope. You know what you're left with? Circumstances working out. And to the degree that your circumstances work out, that's the degree of the hope you have, the peace you have. Right? And if you happen to be lucky enough to have good health in your body, and you live in Kitchener-Waterloo, and you've got a job, and you can pay your bills, then I, I, then, then I suppose it, it would seem as though that's not a bad scenario. But let's think bigger and broader. Is that, just because it's true for you, does that make it truth? Globally speaking, there is no hope and there is no rest in just trusting in circumstances working out and turning out. And, and so the gospel um, extracts us out of being held hostage by circumstances working out and says that um, our hope is in something that death itself cannot steal. And so that's why Peter is reminding the church, um, you could be deeply grieved and not be crushed. Those two things are possible in Christ. Deeply grieved and not be crushed. Only in, only in Christ. This is the hope of the gospel. And it enlarges our heart when we rest in this towards God and others. You think about it this way. On June 6, 1944, we call that D-Day. Right? That's the day that the Allied troops invaded uh, Normandy. But on May 8, 1945, about a year later, that's what you call V-Day. The day that the victory was actually, the war was decidedly and officially over. But, you know, between d D-Day, for all intents and purposes, when the Allied troops hit the beach, the war was over. But between D-Day and V-Day, there was a lot of skirmishes, a lot of battles. There was, people still died in that period of time, even though it was accomplished. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's a bit of a picture of D-Day was the cross. Christ, what he did and accomplished. It's game over. You're justified, and now you have a promise that's kept. But you and I are living between D-Day and V-Day. We are living between the period of time of Christ's cross and Christ's return. The problem, and if I was to criticize us preachers here in North America, is that we like the idea of talking about grace, but we don't want to talk about sin. We want to talk about God, but we don't want to talk about the devil, because that makes us sound unintellectual and weird. We want to talk about good things, but we don't want to talk about darkness. Well, I'm going to talk about, you know, live a great life and love your neighbor, but we're not going to talk about evil and suffering. See, the problem with that is you're left with this weird, neutered idea of the gospel so that Christ's return is somehow in a, a kind of not relevant. It's not talked about, it's not thought about, it's not in our paradigm. So then when we suffer, our hope is actually in the circumstance turning around. 
And then when it doesn't, we're devastated. And so what Peter is doing here is Peter is taking this church and he is saying, guys, I need to cure you of your nearsightedness. I need you to think back to Christ's grace and what he did. And now I need you to think all the way forward to the implications of that. If that's true, and Jesus Christ suffered and died in 33 AD under Pontius Pilate, like Roman antiquity affirms, and if three days later the tomb was empty, like the Babylonian Talmud and the Christian Bible and the Roman antiquity affirms that that tomb was empty, and he resurrected from the, from the grave, what are the implications of that for you, a human being made of dirt and dust, and one day we're all returning there? It's not morbid anymore. There's nothing morbid about that. That's why Paul says, O death, where is your sting? Because our hope is that everything that God intended at the beginning, he is restoring for you, kept for you, your children in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. And the final thing is the rest. So kids, look down at your notes again. How do we rest in the hope of the gospel? How do we rest in it? What is Peter trying to get that church to rest in? What am I desiring that you and I would rest in? Rest only comes in remembering. There's no rest without remembering. That's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. Why does the church even gather on Sundays? Well, if you flip into the New Testament, where are you going to find our liturgy at KW Redeemer? I'm going to tell you where you're going to find it. Nowhere. You're going to find the, the, the components of our worship everywhere. But Jesus said gather, eat and drink, and remember me. That's the part out of, that, that's the part out of uh, our Sunday morning liturgy that you can point right and go, well, there, there it is right there. How many songs did they sing? I don't know. Were they fast? Were they slow? I don't know. Do they have drums? Do they have instruments? Were they allowed to have the worship? Did the worship have to be in the corner, or could it be in the front? What if you walked in next Sunday, and I moved the worship team to the front? Did the Holy Spirit leave? I mean, I'm not going to do that, but I'm, I'm just saying. Maybe one day we'll be in a context where that's going to make more, make more sense or a building or something. I'm just making things up. Things that we've decided are like super important that are like super nowhere. You know? And maybe I'm jaded because I've been to the Church of the Billboard and you haven't. So perhaps there's commitments that you have that are far more, uh, you're far more committed to than I am. But what Peter was trying to do is go, I gotta dial you back to something. The life and death stuff. I gotta dial you back to what really matters. Christ and him crucified. And it's not just like this out in the out 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 in the stratosphere phrase. That's where the actual hope is. Think about it. It's not abstract, it's actually very concrete. How did Christ deal with his suffering? When he was in the garden, how did he deal with it? What did he do? The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 12, verse 2, what Jesus, how Jesus dealt with his suffering. The Hebrew writer says in, in Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the suffering. What was the joy set before him? Power? No, he already had that. Heaven? No, he already had that. What was the joy set before him? Church, it was you. You were the joy set before him. You were what Jesus was thinking about. You. How did he get through his suffering? He thought about you. He wasn't thinking about heaven. He already had heaven. He was thinking about you. That's how he got through his suffering. He thought about how much you needed his grace, and it got him through. How much you needed him to, to take your uh, sin. He need, you needed him to take your sin away. That got him through. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame? 
How do I know this? Isaiah 53, I'm not going to take the time to do it now, but Isaiah 53 prophesies it. It says, Isaiah 53 prophesied 700 years before Jesus and said that he thought about his offspring, which is you, his children, you and I. Jesus thought about you and that got him through his suffering. You and I think about him. That gets us through ours. Jesus thought about you and how much you needed grace and that got him through his suffering. We think about him and the implications of that grace, and that gets us through our suffering. So kids, look down at your notes, and I'm going to close with this. Jesus thought about how much we needed his grace, and that enabled him to endure his suffering with joy. And when we think about the implications of his grace for us, that enables us to endure our suffering with joy. The victorious Christian life is not a life devoid of suffering, sadness, or tragedy, because those lives don't exist. The victorious Christian life is the one where we rest and, and fall on God's grace in the midst of our suffering. The hope of the gospel strengthens our hearts with the grace of God to have joy. Let's pray.